Hello and welcome to the Flowerpot podcast. My name's Bruce Langridge and today I've got a very special guest with me because I've got the new director of the National Botanic Garden of Wales. It's Dr Lucy Sutherland. Hello Lucy. Hello Bruce. <laughs> welcome to Wales. You've been here for how long now? I've been at the Botanic Gardens for about five weeks Fuck and then right. I arrived about a week and a half prior to that to you know get, get things in order. Great. <laughs> now I'm trying to give a feel about what botanic gardens are about around the world and you give us this wonderful international dimension to all of this and so I'll be asking you a few little questions about that sort of and try and put Wales into a bit of an international context as well. Yes. But I think uh, just, just at the very, very start, if it's okay with you, Lucy, can you just, just give me a little bit of an idea of the background of what's drawn you to Wales? Uh, so my background is very strongly in botanic gardens, e- even right from the beginning of finishing my undergraduate degree. I had an opportunity to be interviewed for a role in Tondoon Botanic Gardens in central Queensland. You know, brand new botanic gardens, native plants in a rural, a rural regional area. And I wasn't quite sure I wanted this job. I actually went to it for practice because I had an interview the following week in a national park. And I got to this interview and I saw this amazing collection of plants, Banksia robur, uh, Grevillea uh, venusta, uh, you know, extraordinary central Queensland xanthoreas. And I was just so excited about the direction this botanic garden was going and the director at the time, who was a great visionary, a geographer, so definitely about people and plants. And that set my journey of of being involved in botanic gardens for more than three decades. (laughs) Wow, but you said you went from being an undergraduate, so what what did you graduate as? I did a degree in ecology. Yeah, what, yeah. What, what university was that? Uh, so that was at the University of Canberra. I actually specialised in limnology, of all things. What is limnology? <laughs> <laughs> the study of fresh water. But I do need to say, it, I did particularly look at water plants at aquatic macrophytes. Oh, lovely. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's great. And, and you also got a, a PhD, haven't you? Yes, I did that at London Metropolitan University. And I did a PhD in the role of botanic gardens in the less developed world. And their role in nature-based tourism and how these gardens were using tourism as a tool for conservation and sustainable development. So it was quite a complicated uh, yeah. PhD, but it was very much embedded in the social sciences and, and how it really explored botanic gardens as these multidisciplinary institutions. Uh, but we can use industry like tourism to to enable our underpinning work of science and conservation which which the three gardens i studied did i like that i mean it's it's, i i I think uh we're going to benefit an awful lot from your experience from what you've done and because you've worked in many several different botanic gardens yes Uh, so are are they were they all in australia uh so Yes, yes and no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never a straightforward answer. So I was at yeah, Gladstone Tondoon Botanic Gardens. I was also at the Australian National Botanic Garden uh, I, uh, and I had a couple of different roles there. So I was there for about eight years and in, that? in Canberra, yeah. in the capital of Australia. Uh, and then I was director of the Botanic Gardens and State Herbarium in South Australia for five years. 
And then prior to all of that, I worked for Botanic Gardens Conservation International for four years and I was doing a lot of training and capacity building in botanic gardens, particularly in the less developed world. So I worked in North Africa and um, India primarily, but also did some work in, in Mexico and China and uh, and 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 then interesting some work in Europe as well. So I, all of that is quite extraordinary because that provided me with a framework for botanic gardens that was very much global. But also I could see botanic gardens in a different social context, different political context, a different environmental context. And it really broadened my view and understanding of botanic gardens as a community, but also botanic gardens as individual gardens and their role to service society. Could you actually define the botanic garden for me? Well, I can give you a very straightforward, you know, the Wikipedia bota or yeah, botanic yeah, garden, yeah, botanic yeah, yeah. gardens conservation international definition, which is very much that these are collections based institutions uh, like museums and art galleries. But of course, we're working with living collections and they are, you know, primarily for the purpose of science, research, conservation, education, lifelong learning. And of course, for public enjoyment, really, yeah. really importantly. Yeah, which is very similar to the uh, the mission statement for here, <clears throat> which, uh, which, so. which has in it, uh, for this botanic garden, has the, the desire to make a sustainable future as well, which makes it quite a modern, forward-looking botanic garden. Is, is that seen around the world? Do, do all the botanic gardens take on that role nowadays? I think we've seen, certainly in the last two decades, a massive transformation globally in botanic gardens to take on that role and to take on that role very seriously uh, supporting the community in sustainable living um, building capability and capacity in the community for for living sustainably but also you know for how we manage our biodiversity and I think as a community as a global community as well as within nations botanic gardens come together to really discuss these matters very seriously and how they can enable and support communities. Just prior to our chatting today I've met with Carly Green and Elle who uh, featured in previous podcasts who were both apprentices here who came to Australia uh, while she was still working there for a BGCI, a Botanic Garden Conservation International Conference that pretty much dealt with these issues. Very much so. So in September that was hosted by the Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria and that was a global global congress it we had people from all over over the world and of course Carly and Ellie were there as well and there were very big conversations you know climate change being one of those some of that can be from a very practical perspective how do we look at our living collections now how do we make them and evolve them to be resilient for changing climates but then also what's our role in education in influencing policy to support government in implementing climate change policy um, you know for the future. So a lot of the botanic gardens that you probably talked about as well they're, they're kind of they might have all started off as maybe being um, maybe an individual garden or a city was expanding and they created a botanic garden especially. They've probably all got their own little story. I think they do. If I, if I come back to the first botanic garden I worked in, Tondoon, that was part of 
a quite a massive push in Australia for regional botanic gardens. So not botanic gardens in capital cities, but throughout the throughout the region, throughout the countryside, collecting plants and building collections for conservation of local flora and regional flora. So not taking in global collections to showcase the world's flora, but very much focusing locally and building these ex-situ collections that could potentially be used for conservation in the long term. And if you look at places like Queensland, there are you know multiples of these from, from the subtropics right through uh, to far north Queensland, which is of course is, is the tropics. And, and above the Tropic of Capricorn. So that was a driving force for that model. And then we have the other one which you were referring to earlier, which is sometimes things convert or transform into a botanic garden. So Watunga Botanic Garden, which is an extraordinary botanic garden in South Australia, was originally a family homestead and garden estate. And Edwin Ashby was doing experiment, horticultural experimentation, um, looking at, uh, he, he was very revolutionary or innovative perhaps at that time in the early 1900s around that deep watering of plants, not the surface watering, do long deep watering but you don't have to water so frequently. And he was trialing that. That family home and his experimental gardens were then bequeathed to the state and they became Watunga Botanic Garden that we know today. And presumably their research probably uh, helped in the, probably the long-term conservation of natural resources in other places because of what you've been doing. Yeah, and that's right. what I think botanic gardens are really great for is, is almost being a place where people can come and learn about how to uh, not only garden, but look after the natural environment better. That's right. Yeah. And I think the uh, many contemporary botanic gardens that we see today, you know, those that have been, perhaps were in the planning, uh, I would have said even 60s was, was very cutting edge at the time for some of those those ones. But really that some of that big thinking was coming through in the 1980s, these botanic gardens, 1990s, this sort of renaissance of botanic gardens. Many of those have natural landscape with them. So they have curated collections and then they might have a, an, a nature reserve like we do at the National Botanic Garden of Wales. Yeah. Of course, we've got a, an NNR or National Nature Reserve and this has you know conservation status and with the more contemporary botanic gardens we're starting to see that form part of the estate of the botanic gardens and it mean it adds to the, their role really. We're a charity does that set us apart from most of the botanic gardens that you know? I think it's very country um, contextual so in the UK off the top of my head I think we have two charity botanic gardens ourselves as the National Botanic Garden of Wales and the Birmingham Botanical Gardens and Glasshouses I think they're the only two that I know that are fully charity mm. in Australia most of the botanic gardens come under government the capital cities primarily come under state government Australian National Botanic Garden, Commonwealth Government, then the regional gardens are under local government. And then in the United States, the great majority of those are, are charities and they rely heavily on philanthropy. I think there's probably only one government botanic gardens that I know of there. Now, I'm very happy for your <laughs> listeners, Bruce, to yeah. correct me because yeah, yeah. Uh, we are talking about a big portfolio of botanic gardens sure. around the world. So they do very 
quite tremendously. And then there are, of course, our private gardens as well, and private gardens that are still open to the public. And Belize Botanic Garden in, in Central America is a lovely example of that. Um, that was actually established by the Japloys, uh, a family, uh, as part of a, a big ecotourism development. Um, not, a, not big, uh, but, you know, you know um, as, as, you say big, and that that seems to contradict ecotourism. <laughs> but you know, you know, an, I, I know you mean. an important, you know, ecotourism lodge and, and beautiful yeah. area, and 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 the botanic gardens was developed as part of that, but was very much, a, you know, private. And then and then I think it is now a charity. That, that different ways that they're funded obviously affects the way they're run, because um, I can imagine the ones where they're governmental funded, they probably can be more long term in the way they actually plan things a little bit more because you're kind of a bit more guaranteed to have probably a better chunk of your revenue and capital funded every year. And for the charities, it's a little bit more eek at times. Sometimes you get some money, then sometimes you don't get so much. So do you think that is a factor that we need to be considering in Wales at all? That um, Maybe because, because we are a charity, it, it, it stops us planning long term? Yeah. <laughs> I think it can stop us um, planning long term because you, you end up going from year to year. But as we know, because botanic gardens tend to be long term planners, we need to transition to a situation where we can think really at least in three to five year planning cycles. And then, of course, when we plant trees, we're thinking about the next 100 years or 200 or yeah. 300 or 400. Yeah. So in botanic gardens, we're big long term future thinkers yeah. and having to operate short term can be quite challenging for us. So I think the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges for, for an institution of this size and, and being a charity is that we have to transition to a, a longer term. And the only way you can do that, that takes time. We're only 22 years old. Yeah. It takes time to build supporters, uh, different partners that allow us uh, to build things like an endowment that we can then invest and then you know those dividends can be reinvested into our operations and allow us to really fly because we're able to to plan much much more in advance yeah but there's an also in it to complement that the other aspect about being an organization that's a charity like this and and sometimes you're challenged financially is that you do tend to be very resourceful and you tend to be, we have staff that are very nimble to opportunities. So there's a great opportunity aligns to our business priorities, uh, you know, when we're on to it. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're, we're a great, great organisation to work with and partner with. And, and we can be very nimble at times. Yeah, when I've worked here a few years, Lucy, and I've seen loads of people have done lots of little bits and bobs here and there. Yeah. Not always on the job description, but you kind of like, you dance around about what needs to be done when yeah. it needs to be done. Yeah, that's right. And I kind of get that. And if you're all feeling like you're part of a mission, I think that makes it a lot easier for people to volunteer or, and want to do that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's quite critical. It's quite critical that people understand the mission they've been involved in the strategic planning and, and they they know what we're all working together for because then, then it becomes a reality of sometimes we've got to make decisions that we're putting finances in one area to grow that area and we're not able to put it into another. But if everyone understands that and they... They're shared in that, yeah, we understand why that's a priority at the moment and our, our, our turn will come. <laughs> <laughs>
And it does. Sometimes you've got to be patient. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, you're saying that for a lot of botanic gardens though around the world, probably the last 20 years has really started to make them focus a little bit more on their, their role in society maybe. That particularly when we're looking at certain crises that affect things, particularly climate change, I think that really gets people really understanding what we're here for. The loss of biodiversity has probably had a big effect as well. So do you think that botanic gardens around, around the whole world have this extra feel of mission and that's kind of bring them all together as a bit of a shared vision? I think that's exactly it. I, I think the vast loss of biodiversity and the attention being placed on conservation, really from about 1980, from the World Conservation Strategy, and then botanic gardens brought into that. There was a community that came together and prepared the botanic gardens conservation strategy for 1989. And then, of course, we were having global conversations as part of the Rio Earth Summit, you know, things... Um, uh, that was setting the agenda, the climate change agenda, the diversification agenda, uh, the sustainable living agenda. Um, the Convention on Biological Diversity provided a, a, a platform, I think, for botanic gardens to come together and see how science and our role in education and, and sharing knowledge could really help um, to mitigate further risk to, to biodiversity. So it was, it's been a long journey and, and I think it's been extraordinary to see how botanic gardens are, you know, in the conversation, but also driving particular agendas around plant, well, in this case, plant conservation, of course, yeah. And for the average visitor, a botanic garden has kind of moved on from a place where you just see collections of just names, factual names everywhere. Now we give it a context and we give them a background story to show why we're doing this. We do. And I think the other thing is we did change how we planted collections. You know, uh, you know, our, our very formal and traditional gardens, as you say, would do that with plant names, with taxonomic groupings. It might be a group of family or a group of from the same genus. And then, of course, now, you know, many gardens plant in ecosystems so you can start to see how plants relate to each other you know what does their their tribe look like <laughs> or yeah. you know in our case their habitat or their ecosystem you know what do they grow with and as if you come out of that from a gardening perspective as a gardener you can think oh these these grow together they must want similar soil conditions so i i could try that in my garden and you can immediately translate that to how you can you can enjoy that and and it, you know if you're a gardener um, and you want to explore and try different plants then coming into a botanic garden and seeing what's growing together and getting ideas and being inspired yeah. and talking to our wonderful horticultural staff which i know people do then yeah. that provides a lovely opportunity that you can learn Learn and take it away and apply it. Yeah, well, I was speaking to uh, Matt Smith. He is in charge of the Broadwalk and the sort of lots of outside areas. I was chatting to him the other day that he wants to do a lot more interpretation about the sort of the greenway that they garden here, because he's doing something with um, green manure on, on some of the beds. And so rather than us, Ron, again, one thing I think I've been very proud about this garden is that it's not been full of chemicals. 20 odd years it's uh people have been thinking imaginatively they've been peat free yes i think uh, you know whenever people say you can't grow plants without peat we've had a botanic garden here for 22 years without peat i mean that says it doesn't it yes absolutely and uh, i um, and matt was very much 
saying, it's a good reminder, he's quite news math, so fresh blood, now that's always a really good thing, saying that we need to have these things to really inspire people to go and back to their own gardens and not treat it full of fungicide or herbicide or whatever. I think those little messages are really important. I think they're critically important. It's a critical role that we play, that there is a sustainable gardening approach mm. and uh, and minimising you know our, our use of chemicals looking at uh, different ways of gardening to to enhance companion planting you know all of these different approaches and and us being able to share our knowledge and our expertise to do that but also being a place where people gather to share their own knowledge and their own experiences yeah. as well that's what I think is very exciting with Botanic Gardens while we provide knowledge and share it we're a place where people gather and then come together and talk about plants and you know their experiences and that's really important. Yeah and as someone who loves plants myself it's, it is lovely to have a workplace where you can just share your passion for things and you know the person next to you is going to be just as interested in whatever you've seen that's really nice and you know the fact that we can put on walks and talks and bring visitors together here to also have those conversations is something I think is really important. Yeah I agree with you I think so and it is it's really exciting place to work always in botanic gardens because we're a diverse group of people we straddle the arts, we straddle the science, we, we're very multidisciplinary as an organisation uh, and, and our visitors are as well and, but, but we're here to be in a beautiful place uh, you know, to share our love of plants and gardening and, and of nature. Would you say that botanic gardens are more environmentally responsible than other, just a garden or is that just a really heavy-fisted comparison? I, I don't know whether I can actually answer that. I think of amazing organisations that are, are doing big transition with how they garden. Um, you know, we're not we're not the only organisations that manage gardens, yeah. and so I think there is a big shift. There are different uh, opportunities. There's different knowledge available, and also there's different products available that are not necessarily negative chemical based, but you know, biological. Um, conditioners and fertilizers and things that can really um, that, that that are made from natural products that can really enhance gardening. And I think there's big shifts in how we garden. Um, my colleague Kevin McGinn did led a project last year on called the Pollination Assurance Scheme, trying to get growers, commercial growers, horticultural growers in Wales, who don't use chemicals, don't use peat, to try and get them a, some sort of a, a market and bring them together, mm. and share knowledge. I, I, I thought it was such a great project, but I know it's really difficult because I think we're still at that transition phase, certainly in British horticulture, where not everything is available. You can't do everything. You can't be 100% approved kosher. Because even when you get little seedlings or something, you don't always know if they were planted in peat at the start. No, that's true. And I think it's been hard even if we look at the last sort of, you know, 24 months because of the supply chain of things. You know, it's not always been easy to get products and supplies. I, I'm sure it was the same in the UK that you couldn't buy, you know, you couldn't buy seed stock at all. <laughs> uh, you couldn't buy, um, you know, seedlings. Everything was flying out as soon as it was on the shelf because there was a massive turn to gardening as part of health and well-being during um, the pandemic. Yeah. And so, you know, that 
would have compromised a number of um, growers as well, just being able to get the right products that they needed and required to, to maintain their principles of what they were, what their business was underpinned on. Yeah. Now, Lucy, I haven't even asked you yet. What drew you to Wales? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there were lots of things that drew me to Wales. And this is a botanic garden I, I talk about having had a watching brief on, really, because I had the pleasure of coming here 1999 maybe oh. before it was opened but things were I think it was or 2000 maybe but it, but it hadn't officially opened as part of a botanic gardens education network meeting and it was hosted here and that gave me an opportunity to start to learn about the sustainability principles on which it was based, but also an understanding you know, of the complexity of this botanic garden and, and perhaps the uniqueness of it. Uh, um, you know, having the, having the, uh, the farm, the, the nature reserve, which is being class, uh, designated, I guess, more recently, mm. but the, the, the whole approach and philosophy around regenerative agriculture and biodiversity. And because it was very much founded on sustainability principles and operations, you know, we were still grappling at that time with botanic gardens. How do we transition botanic gardens, particularly those older ones with big glass houses and yeah. uh, all the rest of it? So it's one of those gardens I've just always kept my eye on and looked for, for stories and information about. So it was a wonderful opportunity when the director position uh, was advertised. I was looking for a, a nice good challenge to get my teeth stuck into. Sure. Uh, and so the opportunity to come back to the UK and be here in Wales, be part of this organisation, actually was really exciting for me. And there's, you know, there's so much... Uh, there's so much happening here, but also there's so much opportunity, and it, yeah, it's, it's lovely now to be here and, and be part of the, the you know continual vision making for this organisation as we take it forward. And uh, you've already talked about as I met with you the other day, and you mentioned, oh, it's probably time to get a new master plan for here. I thought oh, that's kind of really interesting. I like that. And it's uh, after being open for 22 years, it's time to just kind of refresh a little bit. Well, I think it's to look at it. So this, the master plan we have, as you know, was uh, done in 1998. They are about a 20 to 25 year old document and they're about future vision for really about mainly infrastructure. So developing uh, and but it's also maps to how we want visitors to use the area and how they move through the area. So, it'll you know, the pathways and mm -hmm. et cetera. But if we're developing things like our new National Arboretum, that, of course, was originally on the 1998 master plan. Yeah. So these take time to implement. They're the big vision of where we're going in the next 20 to 25 years. And then, of course, we beaver away, including myself as the director, working hard to go, how do we fund that? We're, who's going to come and partner with us to fund that extraordinary development? And so it is about really future thinking. And I think the opportunity to review the 1998 and then to go, what, do we, what are we doing in the future? And there's lots of ideas with staff, uh, some very entrepreneurial ideas around the organic farm mm. and the NNR. And this is an opportunity for us to get that captured and, and put into the master plan so that one of the, I think, really important things when you're dealing with plants and, and uh, living collections 
is that you're thinking long term. And so this is about getting some of that long term thinking captured and documented so that, you know, when I move on or, or the curator moves on, not that he's going anywhere, but uh, then, then it allows the vision to be maintained um, because you can't keep chopping and changing with your vision when you're dealing with living collections. You have to be big picture thinking long term yeah. and, and respect that, I think. One of the reasons we do these podcasts is letting people know what is the virtue or the benefits of having a botanic garden. Just from my own perspective, I think that still a lot of people probably still don't really get that. People love coming here, you know, and I, I, that's I can see that. And you, all the feedback you get, you get really positive feedback. People love their day. They love their visit here. But I, I think if I was, you know, if you ask everybody, what is it that makes it a National Botanic Garden? That probably people probably probably might be a little bit more wobbly on that one, so I think there's probably a role here. You coming from with outside eyes can probably help to really put that into people's minds, and that's why I'm asking you about the international perspective really. And I wonder if that if, you know, all the different botanic gardens you come from, whether not they have that sort of issue themselves. Well, I, I guess the. The, the obvious example for me is thinking about the National Botanic, the Australian National Botanic Garden, I, which I, of which I was there for a number of years. And one of the things that I did when I was employed to go there initially was to do the management plan, the ten-year management plan for the botanic gardens. And the director at the time and I travelled around, and we spoke to groups across Australia and said, "What do you? Ex this is this is a Commonwealth government garden." So it's funded by the federal government. What do you expect of your national botanic garden? And that allowed us to integrate a voice from across the nation, not just from across Canberra, into our future thinking about that botanic garden. And it's been extraordinary to watch how that institution has, has evolved um, because part of those conversations also got staff very much involved in the planning and that meant we had a very collaborative view and a collaborative voice and it really started to realign uh, the institution and where it went and it recognises that it's still a botanic garden in a place with mm -hmm. the National Botanic Garden of Wales in Carmarthenshire yeah. but the big considerations for us always are how do we service Wales? Yeah. Now we do do that because we do science that we publish that is you know, globally recognised and globally accessible and, in, and informs many things. We work with Natural Resource Wales and that is a national body as well and our science informs and guides some of that work and we inform policy with the work that we do as well. But I think it's always about thinking of what work we can do that supports the people in North Wales or mm. the schools in North Wales uh, or, or in other parts of Wales. So I do think some of that is about having everybody starting to think and work as. Uh, and, and remember that we are a National Botanic Gardens and bring that into conversation of what does that mean? What does that mean for our education and learning programs? What does that mean for the science that we do? What does that mean for um, 
the horticulture that we do. And I think it's recognising that we sit on a number of groups and we inform those as well as a national organisation. Uh, we sit on the European Consortium of Botanic Gardens. I had a meeting with them this week. Our curator sits on the Plant Sentinel um, group, which is a, a national body looking at biosecurity issues. So there are a whole range of things where we are contributing to national and international conversation and we're here representing Wales, the country of Wales, the people of Wales to do that. But it's an ongoing dialogue and it's an ongoing mission to continue to make sure that we be and um, live up to being a National Botanic Garden of Wales. Yeah, uh, another thing, I can, I can only talk personally with a lot of these things. I like seeing the development of the National Seed Bank here as well. And you used, you used to work in a National Seed Bank, didn't you? Is that right? I coordinated the Australian Seed Bank Partnership. So that was nine conservation seed banks across the country. And of course, Australia is a federated a state system. So the seed banks were responsible for their flora ah, within right. their states. Yeah. But as you know, the plants are not going to be that <laughs> accommodating <laughs> to only occur in one state. Yeah. And it also meant that different states might have the most extreme. So that, the, you know, the highest altitude of, of that particular species or the most Western, um, you know, remnant. So uh, my role was to work with these extraordinary scientists across the country and make sure that we had a national program to, to look after our biodiversity through conservation seed banking and look at how we could collaborate, leverage resources across the country and the Brains Trust, the extraordinary laboratories and equipment to actually help Australia to manage its biodiversity into the future and also be a safety net, safeguarding Australia's rich flora. And so, uh, and we did that th through very strong partnerships. And of course, we partner here. We're part of a global partnership, the Millennium Seed Bank Partnership, mm. run through the Royal Botanic Gardens queue. And our National Seed Bank um, is part of that program and, and a very critical part um, for, for us uh, conserving and safeguarding the flora of Wales. And I also think uh, another role that has really kind of really grown across botanic gardens from what I can see over the last 20 odd years. First of all, there was education. I know education has been around, but it wasn't probably around in the 1950s or 60s. It probably grew in the 80s and 90s. First education programmes were really early ones, I think, were in the 1970s. But right. yeah, very much coming into the 80s and 90s. Yeah, very much so. And so that, that's kind of developed. It's kind of what you expect now from if you come to a National Botanic Garden or probably most botanic gardens, you expect them to have an education service. You expect, and, and we have one here. But the other thing that's, I think it's grown up as well is the well-being side. That didn't used to be a big issue. And I, I, I can certainly see it here. And I, I, there's some wonderful examples. We have a group who come here every Wednesday called the Live Well Growers who are brain injuries, uh, people with brain injuries, and they come and garden here. You can see how good it does them. I can see with a lot of our volunteers here how they've created social networks based on all their volunteering. And I, I can see people come here just for almost like recovery. I know we've done some work with the local NHS where some of the staff have come here just to sort of kind of to recuperate. This is big, isn't it? 
This is a massively important role of botanic gardens. You're absolutely right that has evolved over very recent years. And I think it's a, a role that we're only going to grow, grow more into um, and, and be able to support our community. And I think they're lovely examples. I remember I've got very strong memories during COVID of walking through the Adelaide Botanic Garden and this lady was lying on the ground taking photos and, and I, you know, I just called out to her and said, oh, well, that's a fantastic thing to, to do. And uh, she came up to me. She was a doctor at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. She had Fridays off. She social, you know, with social dis distancing, met her best friend in the Botanic Gardens every week. And she was on the front line of dealing with COVID patients. And it was absolutely essential for her health and well-being um, to be able to come into the Botanic Gardens. We kept it open um, during uh, the COVID restrictions for health and well-being, community health and well-being, a very conscious decision to do that. And just to have someone who was at the coalface just saying thank you for doing that, um, because every, you know each week I, I can I can be here and and it's great for for myself. That was a you know such an extraordinary story, and I know that there are thousands of those stories across the globe as with our botanic gardens um, and and you know the the types of groups that we have coming in I think the volunteer community ours is massive here we've got 200 mm. volunteers and they are very much part of our community our botanic gardens community but they're contributing back they're giving a lot back to society through their volunteering through volunteering for us but they're also part of a community so they have a support system and all the things, the lovely things that being part of a community bring, the social um, aspects of that, as well as the learning, the brain stimulation parts. So I, I think Botanic Gardens grabbing this opportunity to continue to support the community through health and well-being. Um, and then the obvious other area as part of this is we're an ageing community and we have vastly increasing numbers of people with dementia, Alzheimer's. And so being a place that uh, we provide programs and support for our diverse community, I think is very, very important going forward. Yeah, and I know we we do have a lot of different communities like that have come through and I know we've, we've had big discussions here about how we can help aid in whatever way we can. Do you know we've even got a silent space here so there's a big movement for silent spaces, places where you don't get your phone out yeah. or you talk very, you don't even talk, you just listen. I think just that idea of standing and listening, really important. Yeah. There's, you know, there's a lovely fact, I, don't, I can't remember what you've got, you know, if you look at a flower for like six seconds, your blood pressure starts coming down. I mean, that's amazing. Mm. And all the, uh, the ideas that, uh, well, not even ideas, sort of people are tagging on to the fact that there are, sort of hormones coming out of trees and plants as well, which are good for us. Yeah. I mean, this used to be seen as wacky stuff. <laughs> Tree-hugging things. It did. It used to get right slugging off. But actually, it's now proving to be like... Things on, we knew all along, like, Bruce. Things we right. knew all along. I always feel good outside. And I, 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 because I, you know, I'm a bit interested in fungi, I just love all this research of how communications are going through the mycelium in the soil with trees actually passing information onto other trees to try and protect them or even passing nutrients through. 
I mean, this is kind of mind-blowing yeah. stuff. And to be in a sort of institution where... Institution, is that the right word? Yes. But, yeah. Uh, whereby we can help maybe further some of that study and then let people know about it. That's, that's a privilege, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to be able to partner with different organisations in how, you know, and grow our research in that. And as you say, share it and share, share all, that, all that we find out all the time. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. I think one of, one of our challenges in botanic gardens is we are incredibly multidimensional. You know, we've got this very strong science um, and research component. We've obviously got our applied science through horticulture. We do education. We do, you know, we are here for health and well-being. There are all these dimensions, and sometimes I think that can get confusing about what the botanic garden is all about. And the interesting yeah. thing is for me is we're all of those. Yeah, yeah. But I do think it can. Sometimes people do struggle to understand, you know, what what's the botanic garden more than plants in the ground, and then suddenly they discover all these layers behind the institution and, and it's really very um you know they get very inspired by what we do and even us just walking to have this little chat today we walked through our library here and you mm -hmm. said you like the smell of the books and it makes you feel just i think just being amongst the library kind of just makes your brain think in a different way you want to have a conversation about something slightly elevated or it works, and this is what I love about the collections that we have here. We have all sorts of different things, and they all have their own little bit serendipitous sort of consequences of dealing with them as well. And that's the thing I love about Botanic Garden. Absolutely. And you just think uh, it's amazing, isn't it? We go into the herbarium, um, and uh, in, I'm in the science building with you at the moment. And, you know, one of the... Uh, we've, we've got collections by David Mabley. Um, and, of course, you know, he, he's a very famous... Mo most people that have studied plant sciences will, of course, use David's books as undergraduate or postgraduates. And, you know, so we've got collections that were part, a significant part of people's lives, and these people have given a lot to us globally in terms of our knowledge. These important collections and this, we've got stories about people, haven't we? The yeah. rich people that are part of our institution and, and part of, you know, individual people's lives. And, and I think that's what's really exciting as well. Just people's adventures are, and the things that they've learned about plants that, that we share. There's one thing you might not know yet, Lucy, but in the Science Centre when you come in, there's an exhibition on women botanists of Wales. And this was great because this, when the library was being put together, it was initially lots of donations, people were giving us loads of books, and the library volunteers who were doing that had got their hands on the new Encyclopedia of Wales, and they turned to the botany pages to sort of have a read, and they read through it, not one woman was mentioned. And they thought, right, right, we're going to find the women who contribute to botany in Wales. So they took it upon themselves to do lots of research, uh, and then we found some funding to, to create an exhibition. And I loved that, that resonance then. I kind of like that stubbornness and that, that realisation that uh, probably a lot of gardens in the past were probably very male-dominated as well. And I think that, that equalisation is really important. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. We've seen much more over the last sort of two or three decades Two, two decades, a lot more women in leadership, women in executive positions within botanic gardens. And then you've got women that have been in them for a long time. Um, 
the wonderful and late Dr. Angela Laver, um, who was the director of the National Botanic Garden of Havana, Cuba, who'd, who'd been the director, I think, since 1969. And, and she, she passed a few years ago, but an extraordinary woman scientist. But she must have been one of, one of the very early ones, I think, um, and a great leader um, for, uh, and someone to look up to for many of us. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Lucy, I'm not going to ask you about your plans for the garden because I don't think that's fair. And uh, but yeah, I do know that you, because you mentioned you're going to maybe look at a, a master plan again, and maybe we'll come and chat again in, whenever you're ready to do that. Yeah, that sounds great. I tend to think that anyone who starts a new job, at least six months, it takes you to settle in, and then to actually really understand about everything that's just my perspective on other people I think it's a very interesting because you do often get what's your vision for the gardens and and I think you can come in from the outside with a vision but it's not until you have the the context of working with staff you have the cultural context you really understand deeply the history of the place and and the you know where, where the ideas came from that really that that helps to change and, and and what what your original thoughts were and really helps to mold what that future vision is because it really is about understanding multiple perspectives but understanding culture and place and I've never lived in Wales before so that's mm. even more critically important for me to really have an in-depth understanding and and have lots of conversations with people as we you know we plan for the future yeah well I think you're gonna have a really good adventure Lucy <laughs> it's really nice to chat to you and uh hopefully tonight we we start your your time here with a bang because we've got the launch of Luminate tonight haven't we as well so we're going to have an awful lot of people walking around in the dark hopefully lit, lit as they walk around but this is a whole new adventure for us as well isn't this it? This is and, and this is a very special night because tonight is for uh, opening night for staff and their friends and family so this is going to be a lovely evening of people um, being able to share their botanic garden in a whole different experience with their loved ones and hopefully everyone will have a lot of fun and we look forward to hearing everyone's responses tomorrow. Thanks Bruce. Thank you Lucy. <laughs>